Hey, everybody. Welcome to this week's edition of the Dividend Kings Roundtable podcast. This is Nicholas Ward, and uh, on the line with me today, I have our two uh, two of the Dividend Kings founders, uh, Adam Gallus and Brad Thomas. Today, the title of this uh, week's discussion is our favorite election watch list blue chips. Uh, you know, the general ideas that we're trying to, uh, everybody's kind of worried or at least thinking about the election. There's a lot of uncertainty in the markets uh, right now. We've seen uh, we're actually rallying today, but you know, up until this morning, we had dropped uh, 1,800 points on the Dow uh, this week. So that's obviously a good bit of negative volatility. A lot of that is being attributed to the election uh, and to sort of what the uh, pollsters and prognosticators are predicting. Uh, just my personal opinion, I think you know, I kind of give all those opinions uh, kind of a small grain of salt. We saw uh, that most of the pollsters were mistaken in 2016, and I would not be surprised to see a similar uh, result from their point of view in 2020. But I think, uh, you know, kind of with regard to that, that doesn't mean that uh, investors need to be frightened or scared. I think uh, over the long term, blue chip investments uh, generally perform well, regardless of who is uh, in the White House and who is uh, sitting in Congress as well. So I think we're, we'll do our best to, uh, you know, provide some solid investment uh, ideas today. So uh, to begin the discussion, I will pass to Brad Thomas. He is our uh, kind of our REIT and real estate expert, and I think that is the uh, topic that he wanted to discuss with regard uh, to the election and politics. So, Brad, uh, why don't you start our discussion today with some of the uh, kind of ideas and concerns that you've uh, you know heard our subscribers uh, you know bring up recently? Sure, and uh, thank you again for letting me be on the podcast today. Podcast that's great to hear from uh, from Adam and, and you as well, Nick. And yeah, so I think real estate is definitely going to be impactful. Um, you know, it always is. Uh, it is, after all, one of the largest asset classes uh, in the world. And I'm talking real estate, not just REITs, of course, but uh, the REIT sector has also gotten fairly large uh, in itself. But overall, when I think about you know the impacts to the election and Really, you know, think of it, we've got, you know, a, a billionaire in the White House who made his wealth uh, through, uh, through real estate investing. And so uh, um, I think that's rather ironic uh, here uh, is where we sit today. But regardless of who wins the presidency, I think the status quo for the American tax landscape is unlikely to change. Um, and uh, given the state of the economy, federal relief, spending, state budget shortfalls, and Many unknowns surrounding the pandemic could be impactful to to uh, real estate to the real estate market. We're already seeing that. I mean, when I look at it, as I think at it, I think about it in terms of geography because we're already we obviously see that that bifurcation and in, in which states are blue and which states are red and and so I think when you think about you know which real estate which real estate asset class is going to perform better, you really have to you know go back to location, location, location and and that means, you know, obviously the Western part of the U.S., I'm, I'm talking the coastal markets, California and uh, Portland and Oregon, and those markets have obviously been under a lot more stress. You could say the same for uh, New York City. Uh, so a lot of these urban markets, uh, especially that are blue, um, uh, are, are really under, under a lot more pressure um, than some of those other markets. And that's why you've seen somewhat of a flight to quality really in, in the Southeast where I live. Uh, so you think about it in the multifamily sector, 
today. And, and um, although I think Nick, you and I both are happy to see Essex uh, rise today up, up 6% as we speak, but you know, Essex and, and uh, some of those markets, even Avalon Bay has exposure as well uh, in these coastal markets, you know, have been under a lot more pressure. And so potentially that, that's kind of what we think about in terms of, um, you know, the, the presidential election, but, but kind of drilling down a little further, um, I think, you know, looking at some of these laws that could be impacted, and one of those I, I talk about a lot is the 1031 exchange laws that could be on the plot, uh, chopping block with a uh, Biden win. Now, remember, this is a century-old law that's created as an opportunity for taxpayers to be able to sell real estate without recognizing any gain. Now, it's not a loophole. It's been argued a lot that this is a loophole. It's not a loophole because eventually taxes will get paid. But another kind of misconception surrounding 1031s is that they only, they benefit the wealthy. You know, there's no fact President there's no there, 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 there's a fact that President Trump uh, has uh, created a significant amount of his wealth using the 1031 exchange. Uh, he has a very large transaction right now that uh, that's two office towers that he owns in a partnership with Vernado ticker VNO um, that he created uh, significant wealth several hundred million dollars by exchanging into those deals. And, and if they're sold, he'll, he and uh, Vernado could, could, op, could capitalize on that and, and buy some other properties and roll those gains into another property. And that's what the 1031 is really all about. But the average transaction is just around $1.1 million. So this impacts not just you know, billionaire investors or large family offices, but also individual investors. Um, and this would be average Joe, average Jane, who has a farm to sell and they want to take that, that million dollar farm that they've sold and invested into some duplexes. Um, and so just the benefits of that could be rel fairly substantial. The other one I want to talk about is the Opportunity Zone that was just recently created. Um, uh, and it was actually a bipartisan uh, bill uh, sponsored by T uh, Senator Tim Scott here in South Carolina and Cory Booker. And this provides a great opportunity for investors as part of the legislation that was created is, is the 2017 uh, Tax and Jobs Act. And the original intent here was to spur economic growth in some underprivileged or lagging geographic areas. Uh, but for investors, specifically for real estate, it's attractive because it's a combination of tax deferral and potential tax avoidance on capital gains. So, so functions very similar to a 1031, but it doesn't have to be real estate. You could sell your business. You could sell your stock portfolio and roll those into opportunity zones. So that, I, I think that'll continue, but that is something that, that Trump has certainly been touting as part of his campaign rhetoric uh, going forward. Um, so, so Brad, with, with regard to these, is it, so Trump supports the, these two initiatives and then your idea is that a Biden or, you know, a democratic, uh, you know, government would not, is that, is that what you're getting at? That's it. I mean, you know, basically what Biden has really focused on is obviously he, he wants to make the wealthy pay more taxes and uh, increase the taxes. And so I think in his view, and again, this is not Biden. We've seen this in previous administrations. And thus far, we've kept this, this 1031 law specifically has been on the books for, for many, many decades. Um, I think it'd be hard to go away, but it is something he has talked, Biden has talked about. He doesn't like it. But again, I, I think it's, it's, to me, it's more of a talking point because it does in, impact individual investors. I would be very surprised if that particular law goes away. And if, if it does go away, it could be really disruptive to REITs. And 
really two sides to that though in the net lease space because a lot of these deals and this is what I did before I was you know a writer I did have you know my email address is brad 1031 you know <laughs> and so I, I've, I've been in this space for a long time and know the space um, and um, you know it definitely is very beneficial to investors of all shapes and sizes but if it does go away a lot of those deals were done in the net lease space so you see a lot of these asset classes, whether it be farmland or office buildings or, or high maintenance properties or whatever, or, or generally a, a lot of those are sold into net lease uh, assets. So uh, there's been such a large demand for net lease capital in 1031 that it's created a market in its own and it's really moved the market, believe it or not. I mean, when you look at the overall transaction volume in, 10, in the 1031 space and net lease, it's very substantial. So if that goes away, that could actually be a net benefit. The more I've been thinking about it, uh, it could actually be a net benefit to the, some of the net lease REITs um, because they won't have to compete with this, all this you know, demand uh, of space. But I could definitely see cap rates move more uh, in that 1031 environment. And keep in mind, most all REITs do 1031s. Uh, Taubman did a big deal um, a couple of years ago when they sold off their mall portfolio. Um, um, and a number of REITs deploy 1031s um, to, uh, you know, to exchange into. So, you know, I think that is really impactful, but it really is more impactful to the individual investor. I think the biggest, the biggest thing here, of course, is just the corporate tax rates that could go from 21 to 28%. And again, I, 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 is I, obviously that, that's going to impact a lot of these companies that we, we cover. You know, a lot of the, now, fortunately, most of our recommendations are companies that are very, very profitable. And increased dividends, and, and all all three of us write about these companies day in and day out. And some of the picks that we'll be discussing here momentarily, I'm sure, with with you, Nick, and and Adam as well, are companies that are very profitable. But what I worry about are those companies that are on the borderline, and they're in the middle of this pandemic. And you think of like the theater sector right now, and some of those very troubled sectors. And you pile in tax increases on top of that, we could see you know a wave of more bankruptcy. So. I just worry about the corporate tax rate and unwinding a lot of the tax initiatives that Trump has done uh, as far as his tax and tax and jobs act. And so I just, um, I think it is going to be important and um, you know, but uh, overall, I think, you know, real estate could be impacted, I believe uh, could be hit hardest, but again, there's, I have to say, I mean, there's certain, certain sectors I think will, will benefit more, uh, if Biden's in office in certain sectors, certain sectors geographically that will benefit more, you know, if Trump's in office. Okay. Yeah. So I think, so just to recap, cause uh, you know, I, I know a lot of our listeners, you know, you know, me personally, we, you know, uh, with the 1031, all the, all these sort of numbers, I know yesterday I pay a lot of attention to the tech space and the, the whole discussion yesterday was on the section 230. There's all these uh, numbers involved now that people may or may not be familiar with, but so I guess you like uh, potentially the coastal markets under a Biden uh, or Democratic uh, you know, administration. And then uh, the rest, uh, how, overall, how is the, the REIT space done under the Trump presidency? Do you have any uh, statistics or has that been one of the better performing sectors during his uh, tenure so far? Yeah, up until, up until COVID for sure. And again, you can, you can, uh, you can thank you know, the tax act for, for a lot of that. I mean, it didn't directly, obviously, impact REITs directly. I mean, REITs pay out 90% of the taxable income. Most pay out 100% of taxable income in the form of dividends. 
but it certainly helped individual investors. So I think sentiment was high. Certainly the, you know, the REIT market has, has done pretty well, but then, but, you know, remember we had this period where, um, you know, we had record low rates. So there was this fear of, of rising rates that certainly created this misconception in terms of pricing within the REIT space. So I think we've, we've had, you know, it's, it's really kind of ironic to see that, you know, we've got to this, um, you know, this, this long historical period of low interest rates and, and who would believe that now we're back to, you know, we're back to where we were before. And um, again, this pan pandemic has been really disruptive. And again, I'm, I, I'm not going to weigh in on whether, you know, uh, Obama performed, created more jobs than Trump or created, you know, better returns. Um, you know, I think, look, I think Obama had one set of uh, issues, obviously coming out of the Great Recession. And uh, it took a while, a lot longer for that recovery, as you might recall, because it was such a dark, deep recession. It, it wasn't, you know, it didn't take months. It took really, in my opinion, years to really get, get that economy moving again. So, um, you know, I think you can't really make that comparison, but I think Trump, under the Trump administration, certainly I think, uh, you know, REITs have performed extremely well. And again, we go back and look at our portfolios over long periods of time. And, and again, the, the great thing about REITs, I will say this before, and I'll, I'll, I'll take over, turn, turn over to you guys, but I'll say this about REITs. I mean, what I like about this space and really where I think investors should think about overweighting REITs is because of the very predictable returns that are generated. And if you go back over time, not every year, but, but in many, many years, REITs continue to outperform. And it's, it frankly boils down to that very predictable income stream that these companies can generate. And, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's very easy for us analysts in the REIT space to forecast returns in the REIT space. It's not that we're the Wizard of Oz, but it's just the fact that we can go in and analyze these companies because they have long-term, you know, contractual leases for the most part. Uh, hotels, obviously a different story, but it's a very predictable space. So you can in, in generally, we re, our portfolios have returned uh, over, the, over, the, over the period of time, 12, 13, 14% annually. And, and that's because we've going in and we're buying these properties very selectively. And frankly, we're taking advantage of these, these mispricing opportunities um, in, in the space. And so that's why those sectors like you mentioned uh, multifamily, we think are very attractive right now because you've got to have shelter. There's, there's been a big you know, pushback there in terms of demand, uh, investor demand and sentiment in, in that arena. So I think apartments is a great space. Offices as well. I mean, I think, you know, eventually these offices are going to, um, people are going back to work and it's going to take more time, uh, but we, we feel very you know, bullish long-term. But the most predictable space, of course, is net lease. And we talk about that probably every week. But that is definitely a category that we're overweight in because we can, we can predict these income streams a lot better than some of those other uh, as, uh, those property sectors. Yeah, yeah, I know you and I both are uh, bullish, I think, especially on the multifamily. And like you said, the entire REIT sector has been sort of left behind in 2020. Uh, you know, we'd see energy, financials, utilities, and REITs as the four worst performing. And, if, you know, if I had to pick uh, any one of those to invest in, it, uh, it would obviously be the real estate space due to uh, the predictable returns. I think uh, another uh, area of the market that has been kind of left behind in more recent weeks, and uh, that I think both Adam and I wanted to touch upon today is the healthcare space. I find this uh, particularly interesting. Uh, I don't think the healthcare is quite as uh, kind of 
predictable as the real estate space. You know, you do constantly have to deal with uh, disruption and things like patent cliffs. But uh, a lot of the, the fear in recent weeks does appear to be uh, revolving around the election. Uh, it's kind of the same thing we saw in 2016 when investors, uh, you know, they thought Hillary Clinton would be elected and that that would result in a uh, single payer type of system. I think uh, everybody sort of underestimates just how complicated the healthcare kind of uh, just the whole system is. I think it is a very hard thing uh, to change and regulate in a major way. And with that in mind, I am pretty happy to uh, invest in the kind of the beaten down blue chips that we're seeing uh, in this space uh, today. And uh, with that in mind, I do want to pass quickly. I, I will give uh, some picks as well, but Adam hasn't spoken yet. I know how Adam has some thoughts and I think probably a couple of picks uh, from the healthcare space. I want to uh, pass to him and allow him to say something, uh, you know, before uh, I get into my, my uh, spiel here. Thanks, Nick. So, I mean, the thing to remember about healthcare is uh, it's about 20% of the U.S. economy. It's, uh, it's ex like Nick said, it's extremely complicated. And of course, the, the thing that I want to really point out is a, it's a, one of my favorite quotes from uh, Ben Graham, the intelligent investor is a realist who sells to optimists and buys from pessimists. And the thing is that, you know, it's important to remember politicians will promise you the sun, the moon, and the stars to try to get elected. But what they can actually deliver is far more limited. And uh, just to give you an example, Morningstar, they, they estimate that the probability of major healthcare reform, something like a Medicare for all or a single payer system, is less than 5% over the next decade. And the reason for that is because it is such a complex uh, thing, the regulations involved, the lobbyists, uh, the healthcare industry, <clears throat> if you look across uh, companies like Big Pharma, health insurance, the nursing lobby, they collectively spend about $400 million per year on lobbying. And uh, if you look, for example, uh, globally, there's only two countries that actually have single payer healthcare system, that's Canada and the UK. And so everyone thinks, for example, that Europe, oh, it's a socialized medicine. Actually, no, if you look at Switzerland, Germany, France, Spain, they all have uh, public uh, private partnerships. Uh, there is more regulations, of course, but of course, uh, if you look at, uh, at the state and local and, and federal level, we have plenty of regulations ourselves. It's extremely complex. And so I would just give an example of United Health, for example, that uh, back when the ACA was uh, uh, be, uh, about to be passed in 2010, I mean, healthcare was just slammed. And people said, oh my goodness, you know, Obamacare is going to absolutely crush United Health and Anthem. And those companies have gone on to generate uh, between 800 and 1,000% returns. I mean, those management teams are extremely skilled and adaptable. And so I just want to point out to people that no investor has ever made a penny in profit because nothing went wrong with their companies. Something is always going wrong, and it's the skilled management teams that adapt. They're the ones that make our money. And that's why we focus so much on quality management uh, in the overall quality and safety of a company. But in terms of, you know, my recommendations, uh, as Graham said, you know, focus on what's most likely to happen, not what the market's fearing, uh, fearing might happen. And so the recommendation that I've been making recently, I've been buying, I know uh, Nick is a big fan of, Chuck is a fan of as well, is uh, Johnson & Johnson. Uh, as I explained uh, in uh, two articles I did today, uh, S&P calls them the strongest and highest quality healthcare company in the world. Uh, famously, of course, it's one of only two AAA rated companies, the other being Microsoft. Now, Moody's and S&P did downgrade uh, recently to a negative watch, 
uh, basically warning that uh, if they keep their leverage currently at 1.5, that's uh, above the safety guidelines that they both come, uh, rating agencies have for AAA, uh, that they might be downgraded to AA. Uh, but basically, if you look at the balance sheet, uh, their net debt to EBITDA is 0.4, and analysts expect that to fall to 0.3. And the reason that both Moody's and S&P have affirmed that AAA rating right now, uh, after the Momenta acquisition, $6.5 billion deal, including debt, uh, is because this company generates rivers of free cash flow. Uh, the, just uh, after dividend free cash flow, what's called retained cash flow, analysts expect $10 billion next year, $12 billion in 2022, and $13 billion in 2023. So they have $31 billion in cash right now, uh, you know, the ability to pay down 64% of their debt over the, just the next three years. So really management, all they have to do is basically pull that lever and they can pay down that debt, retain that AAA rating. And that AAA rating is such an advantage. Their borrowing costs are 0.5%. That's half that of the U.S. Treasury which I should point out, according to S&P, that uh, Johnson & Johnson's balance sheet is stronger than that of the U.S. Treasury, and that's why their borrowing costs are lower. So adjusted for inflation, their actual borrowing costs are negative 1.2%, while their returns on cap invested capital are 18.5%. So these guys are just minting money. And of course, 58-year dividend growth streak. I mean, I, I basically call them the safest dividend in the world. And you look at it, it's such a diversified business model. Half the revenues come from overseas, so huge global opportunities. And as and I should point out that the fact that they operate 50% overseas means that they know how to re, uh, how to operate in complex regulatory environments. I mean, they have to deal with Chinese regulators, with European regulators, with the Euro, uh, regulators in Africa and Latin America. Uh, everywhere, uh, basically, government is heavily involved. And they know how to deal with that. They have, you know, giant legal teams, giant compliance teams. Really, I mean, it's an army of experts that if you look at their profitability stable over time, there, there's literally uh, 85 global uh, drug makers that are more profitable than Johnson & Johnson. And on returns on capital, Joe Greenblatt's gold standard proxy for uh, overall quality and moatiness, there's just 34 companies with higher returns on capital than Johnson & Johnson. So these guys are absolute masters at being adaptable and uh, swinging with the times and knowing how to adapt to changing market conditions. And, you know, I'll leave you with one final, uh, you know, note uh, kind of higher end is, you know, a lot of people think that the blue wave that uh, 538 estimates is a 75% probability right now. A lot of people think, oh, that's going to be scary. A lot of uh, cha uh, major changes to healthcare. Well, we should point out, of course, that the Supreme Court just became 6-3 conservative supermajority, and a week after the election, they're ruling on Obamacare. And so we don't quite yet know whether or not Obamacare is going away, but that's the kind of thing to remember. Obamacare, that took 60 Senate votes. I mean, that, that was basically the first uh, supermajority in the Senate in 40 years, and we didn't get the public option. We didn't get single payer. And now, of course, you know, with that going away, and uh, it looks like the Democrats might have uh, between 51 and 52 uh, in the Senate, they're not likely to be able to actually uh, pass it again. So there, there certainly could be a lot of uncertainty, as, I, as I'm sure uh, Nick will allude to. Uh, there's a lot of uh, political-induced uh, weakness going on with the highest quality blue chip names. But remember that the idea behind owning blue chip companies 
is that these are companies with skill and competent and adaptable management. And most importantly, the resources, thousands of employees, huge compliance and uh, uh, legal staffs, and most importantly of all, giant piles of money and rivers of free cash flow, plus very strong A-rated balance sheets that they can adapt. Uh, basically, we saw in this pandemic, they basically took, uh, brushed that off and just sailed through as if basically very little has happened. And it's the worst recession in 75 years. And really, no one's worried about the dividend safety of companies like Merck, United Health, and Johnson & Johnson. And that's, of course, because the focus, uh, as Dividend Kings likes to say, is always on quality first and uh, prudent valuation and risk management always. And now I'll pass it off to Nick to have some of his favorite healthcare picks. Yeah, thanks, Adam. Uh, really, you know, great talk there. Johnson & Johnson was one of the names I was going to discuss, so I am happy to have you uh, steal that and to show that uh, great minds think alike. I will note, uh, just Adam mentioned the kind of uh, predictability of Johnson & Johnson's bottom line. If memory serves, I think, you know, he mentioned that 58-year dividend increase streak. I think they're on like a 36-year just net positive EPS streak, which is just so incredible to me. That actually is uh, likely to end in 2020 due to the pandemic. Uh, however, analysts do expect to see a strong bounce back in 2021. And uh, with that in mind, you know, we're talking about roughly $9 in earnings next year. Johnson Johnson trades for, uh, you know, right at 138 right now. And uh, so that represents a roughly 15 and a half multiple on the forward earnings. And that is exactly where we have seen uh, very strong support form for this company in recent years, uh, which is why I have recently sort of established this as also one of my strongest buys uh, in the market. The other companies that I wanted to discuss were also drug makers. And, you know, I do find it very interesting. I know people are worried about all these kind of healthcare uh, reforms and whatnot, but the way I see it is, uh, you know, the drug makers, when we talk about sort of the chronic illnesses uh, you know, largely due to just bad lifestyle decisions that, you know, we make in this day and age, the cheapest way to treat these things are with drugs and vaccines. Uh, I saw uh, Ken Frazier, Merck CEO, was on CNBC this morning. He mentioned that the, um, uh, the uh, World Health Organization is uh, estimating that COVID is likely to have a 25 to 30, uh, I think, trillion dollar negative impact on the global economy. Uh, that is a just massive, massive amount. And uh, with that, and what's going to fix that is ultimately therapeutics and or vaccines. So I think that, uh, you know, people like to kind of pick on these big pharma names. Uh, you know, nobody likes to, to think about how expensive some of these drugs are. But at the end of the day, I think it is very difficult to put a price on uh, saving a life, which is what these companies do. And, uh, you know, compared to surgeries and uh, other more invasive uh, you know, sort of healthcare procedures, uh, you know, just popping a pill is a, uh, you know, generally speaking, a very cost-effective way to treat an issue. So with that in mind, uh, Adam mentioned Johnson & Johnson. I like uh, three of their names I wanted to touch upon quickly. Uh, these are names we have discussed in previous podcasts, but uh, just, you know, the value is very apparent to me, and I think the, uh, you know, the risk-reward is quite attractive. So I like AbbVie a lot, uh, ticker symbol ABBV. Uh, I, this is not as quite a high of a quality company as Johnson & Johnson because, you know, roughly 40 to 50% of their sales come from a single drug, uh, Humira, which is the world's largest drug in terms of sales. Uh, however, it is coming off Patent Cliff uh, in 2023, and, uh, you know, that will start a pretty precipitous decline in sales from that drug. 
And, uh, you know, there is obviously risk of management having to replace all those sales and earnings. But with that in mind, the stock trades for less than eight times earnings right now. It pays a 5.9% dividend yield. Uh, it is growing earnings at a double digit clip right now. Humira is still performing quite well. We, we're seeing a uh, 13% growth last year. And in 2020, during the pandemic period, Advi is expected to grow earnings uh, by roughly 17%, another 16% next year. So we're talking about, you know, mid-teens growth being priced with an eight times multiple. Uh, you know, in my opinion, the fear associated with that Humira Patent Cliff is being more than priced into the stock. Uh, by the time uh, in 2023, when Humira does come off the books, uh, we'll be looking at like a four times earnings multiple, you know, based upon the current share price and uh, likely projected earnings. Uh, you know, this company is not going to go bankrupt because of that. It's just going to experience some short-term headwinds. It does have a large pipeline and they did uh, buy Allergan last year to address uh, some of their cash flow concerns. So I think Advi is a very, very just, uh, you know, appealing name here, you know, less than eight times earnings with uh, that high dividend yield. And, uh, this is basically the only company that I'm aware of, I think, in the entire market that has a dividend yield this high, you know, roughly 6%, that also offers double-digit dividend growth potential. Uh, they, they've been growing that dividend at a double-digit rate historically, and with the strong earnings growth, I wouldn't be surprised to see that continue to happen. So, uh, you know, that is a quite an amazing combination, and that is why I have been buying Avi recently. Uh, in a similar boat with regard to a high-quality name, Trading with a single-digit PDE ratio, we have Bristol Myers Squibb. Uh, they're trading at nine and a half times right now. Their dividend yield is not quite as high at uh, just 3.1%. Uh, However, uh, they did recently increase their dividend by 10%, and I do expect, uh, you know, they're expected to grow their earnings by 34% this year, and then another 19% next year. So I do expect to see continued double-digit dividend growth coming from Bristol Myers as well. So. Uh, you know, you give me a company that's growing, uh, basically in the, la in the last three years, the company will double its uh, bottom line. So give me a company that's growing its earnings at that sort of rate uh, with a 10 times multiple and a 3% dividend yield uh, expected to grow at 10 to 15% per year. Uh, you know, sign me up for that all day long. And the last company, and this is actually the most recent purchase that I've made uh, in my personal portfolio, I bought shares just the other day after they reported earnings. Uh, is Merck. I mentioned Ken Fraser was on CNBC. Uh, Merck is trading for, you know, roughly 12 times forward earnings right now. The company yields 3.2%. It's not growing quite as fast as the previous two that I mentioned. Advi and Bristol Myers are basically like my two highest conviction picks in the entire market, but Merck is a blue chip. It has a long history of, uh, you know, generating strong profits and it, uh, it is expected to grow it's bottom line 15% this year, you know, we're, we're thinking uh, basically high single digit, low double digit growth in the coming years. Uh, once Humira comes off patent cliff and does shrink its sales, Merck's Keytruda, which is a uh, immuno oncology uh, drug in the cancer space is very likely to sort of take the, uh, the, the crown of the largest single drug in terms of sales in the world. So I always kind of like to have exposure to the winners. Keytruda does not come off patent cliff until 2028. So Merck investors have, you know, a pretty long time to enjoy the, uh, you know, the un, uh, sort of uh, competitive benefits of having that patent protection on that strong drug. And uh, so these are the, you know, including Johnson Johnson, Merck, Bristol Myers, AbbVie. Those are the four names in this space that I like. Like I said, I don't, you know, I, don't, I, I just, I hope and pray that, uh, you know, politicians do not penalize these great American drug companies. 
Uh, not only do they save lives, but they do actually help the economy quite a bit, I think, when you think about the cost effectiveness uh, of their treatments. And uh, with that in mind, we will be closing down this week's discussion. I, you know, I'm very, I think everybody gave some interesting ideas. I think the overarching opinion uh, that we have, generally speaking, is, uh, you know, kind of not to worry so much about the politics, but instead to focus uh, on the high quality nature of the uh, dividend growth names that we follow here uh, at uh, Widemote Research and uh, Dividend Kings, obviously, and then uh, to focus on their fundamentals as well. Those, uh, you know, the politicians may make decisions that change those fundamentals. I think, you know, Brad brought up the tax. Uh, that is obviously, uh, you know, in the forefront of our minds as investors. Uh, you know, but like Adam said, and, and a lot of politicians do like to sort of, uh, you know, promise the moon and then they get into office and realize that uh, it is very difficult to achieve major change. Uh, and therefore, the status quo, generally speaking, doesn't change, uh, you know, nearly as rapidly as the market and or the general investor population's uh, fear gauge uh, might imply. So uh, until next week, and I guess next week's discussion will be after the election, or at least after election day. I don't know when we'll know who the next president is. So we may be uh, continuing this political debate uh, next week, or we may just happily move on to, uh, you know, another gr great idea for the market. But uh, we thank you for stopping by. And uh, until next time, uh, just everybody stay well and uh, safe out there. Thank you. Bye.